Kia ora and welcome to the Kerry Podcast, where we highlight research that weaves together the Word of God in Scripture, the world in which we live, and the work of Christian discipleship. We invite you to join us as we explore ways in which we can live, serve, and witness with Jesus in our constantly changing world. Tena koto katoa, ko Krista Tokuingwa, and I am a lecturer in systematic theology at Cary Baptist College. In this podcast episode, I interview Elisha Hartley on his research about Baptist meetings and how to discern the mind of Christ. There were so many highlights for me from this interview, uh, especially the practical ways that we as Baptist churches can think through healthy ways to discern the mind of Christ that might push against some of our efficiency paradigms, but that really ground this discernment process in relationship. So I was thrilled with different ways of applying what Elisha's research has yielded, uh, and I think you'll enjoy it too. Well, hey there, Elisha. It is going to be great to talk with you today. I'm talking with Elisha Hartley, and we are really looking forward to discussing your research on the social science of meetings, which for some people, they might think, oh, yawn. But you found some fascinating things, and especially as Baptists, since we are a meeting congregational community, actually has some real relevance for us Um as Baptists, but also here in Aotearoa and thinking about kind of our own context. So thrilled to be having this conversation with you. Thank you for your time, Elisha. Um, could you just open up, tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure, Krista. Thank you so much for having me on. It is a real, real pleasure of mine to be here and sharing this, well, my research. Um, yeah, so my name's Elisha Hartley. I live in the beautiful Rotorua. Um, with my wife, and I've got a three-month-old daughter named Emerson, um, so she keeps us pretty busy. I work here part-time at a before-school, after-school, and holiday program for kids, and I'm in my last year of my postgraduate diploma at Cary. I'm, I'm hoping to do my master's uh, thesis next year, so that's pretty exciting. Awesome. Um, yeah, I guess that that that's the bulk of my life at the moment. <laughs> Yeah, well, between a three-month-old study and work, I think that is a lot on your plate. So all the more meaningful that you're here with us sharing a bit about your research. So yeah, could you tell us a little bit um, about what your research is about <clears throat> and even how how it came about um, that you were interested in this area? Yeah, so I mean, I guess start with what my research is about. It's a, I like to think it's about flourishing, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, how we can flourish together as a church. You know, we're called to follow Christ um, and to become like Christ. Um, It's very contextual. It's very contextual for where we are in our area and who we are as well. And so we need to figure that out. And being Baptist, we we believe in discerning, discerning together as the body of Christ, as the local gathering of the followers of Christ. And so I'm interested in how we can do that best. Uh, particularly because I have not um, seen it always be so flourishing. Mm -hmm. And so I'm wondering how we can do that better. And actually, I started all of this research because of you, Krista, um, because of one of your classes called um, Mm -hmm. Human Flourishing. And so it was actually for an assignment for for a conference. Um, We had to engage theology and science. And I remember 
I remember just sitting in a church meeting once. Granted, it was a budget meeting, and they're not the most exciting <laughs> meetings on earth. But I remember just being bored out of my mind in that meeting and reflecting back on all the meetings I've been in in the past and my, the different churches I've been a part of and just wondering where this rich theology uh, of congregational governments and the sacrament of the, the gathered, where, where it was in practice. And, you know, sometimes our meetings are detrimental, you know, so surely there's some way we can do these meetings better. And that's where this research came out of, you know, what are some ways that science, in particular, social psychology, how can they help influence the way we do discernment? How can how can they help us to flourish? I think that's fantastic, Elisha. And I love so much. I loved, of course, having you in class. Uh, that was just such a fun experience. But also seeing you as well as some other students just thinking through what are the needs that we're seeing in our own contexts and how do we actually engage that in an integrated way? So what what resources do we have in theology or biblical studies to bring to that conversation? And then additionally in that postgrad class, right? bringing in the sciences as well, because that's another resource different, yes, from Bible and theology, but another kind of often untapped resource for Christians. And so I remember when I had, um, you know, read your your abstract prior to the Flourish conference and then reading your paper and then getting that into the journal for the Pacific Journal of Theological Research, just loving seeing how you were applying all of those concepts and bringing those to a real need your own experience, right? You're sitting in those meetings, your eyes are glazing over and you're like, okay, mind of Christ, discerning the mind of Christ. This is, this isn't actually contributing to our flourishing. And so I just think you've really epitomized what the hopes were for that class, but also our hopes at carry, right? That we are integrating these different disciplines to actually affect real needs in our lives. So just want to just highlight that and your excellence and how you've done this and just taken it so on board, uh, which can also be a bit scary, right? Bringing in another discipline that that maybe you've not even been exposed to before. Maybe before we go into some of our other questions, that's not one on our list. Um, what was that process like for you? You know, you've done a lot of theology, you've done a lot of biblical study, and then all of a sudden we're like, all right, <laughs> science, which is yeah. huge. And then as you drilled down into that, you found social science. Tell me, tell me a little bit more about that process. What was that like for you in engaging a new discipline? And then even how you drilled down and found the specific social theory that you ended up working with. Yeah. So to be honest, it was really daunting at first. It was really scary because, you know, I've only ever done theology. I've never done anything else. I left high school. I went and did the um, Discovery Internship Gap Year Program and then straight into carry. I've never studied anything else. And so it was really daunting to come in here and all of a sudden have to write at a postgraduate level uh, about psychology, something I've got no clue about. So yeah, so it was it was quite daunting at first, but you kind of just slowly ease into it. You know, uh, the classes on science and theology. So I chose what theology I want to engage with. And I decided, well, I have to start looking at some science, you know, and so I, I could narrow some things down pretty easy. I'm not going to be talking about physics um, or anything like that. And so I knew it had to be something social. So psychology, that social. So I start looking into stuff. I started finding little bits and snippets about theories. And I think one of the nice things is as you start reading about something, it'll link you to somewhere else. 
And then you start reading that and that'll link you to somewhere else. And so all of a sudden you start narrowing things down. You know, you start looking at psychology and I have to be honest, Wikipedia was a big friend of mine here. (laughs) You know, you search psychology and then there's a heading, social psychology, you click on that, it takes you somewhere else. And so that was a big help in narrowing it down. And I kind of narrowed down on three different parts of this subgroup of psychology called uh, group processes. And group processes is basically just the study of how we make decisions and how we carry out certain tasks. Um, So the three aspects I looked at were group think theory, social decision schemes theory, and uh, research around group sizes and the impact on that on decision making. Great. That's fantastic. Did you did you already know that you were interested in the meetings, Baptist meetings question before you started that investigation? Or did the investigation, the questions that raise lead you back in to think, oh, in my own context, this would be really helpful to talk about group meetings? What was the order or, or was there one? Yeah, I do think it all started off um, with the, the idea of Baptist decision making and Baptist discernment. I've always loved being Baptist uh, ever since, sorry, ever since I gave my life to Christ, I've always been interested in being Baptist. And then going to carry and going into the class on Baptist theology, we've got such a vibrant, rich theology being Baptist. And so I think that sparked something in me, but then also seeing the reality not quite matching up. I think that's where it all came from. So I said it Going into this assignment, if I'm going to be doing theology, I'm going to be doing Baptist theology. Mm-hmm. And if I'm going to be doing Baptist theology, then why not do something like discernment meetings? That's brilliant. Could you maybe for some of our audience members who, you know, might say, well, you know, it's not so much about being Baptist or whatnot. It's just about being a Christian. Um what for you excites you about being Baptist? What are the Baptist distinctives that then helped you think, okay, we've got theory and practice and a bit of a mismatch here. Could you unpack that a little bit? Yeah, I love the idea of congregational governance. That, that's, that's a Baptist distinctive. Um, it, it's not just for Baptists, but it's one thing that we strongly believe in is congregational governance. This idea that we all come together to discern the mind of Christ. Um, there's not a single person that's left out of that. From the oldest person in our church to the youngest person in our church, we are all there listening to God and coming together to to follow Christ's will. Mm. That is what I love about congregational governance, that we're all equal in that sense, and that everybody's got something that they can contribute. Everything, Everybody's got something that they can share. You know, I remember being in youth group and being able to be a part of church meetings. And I was able to be a part of church meetings even though, I was just some teenager who just gave his life to Christ, you know, who was more concerned about the games that we were playing in youth group than, you know, to be honest, communion and things like that. But I was able to be there and be a part of it and sharing because I was a Christian and I was listening to God. Mm-hmm. So I love that about being Baptist. I love that about our discernment meetings. That's beautiful. And and you also framed at the very beginning of this conversation um, your desire to see us flourishing more. If you had to put some language to how you see discerning the mind of Christ, which is a Baptist distinctive and how we're meant to be pressing into that congregationally and how that connects to human flourishing, what would be the ways you'd relate those concepts? Yeah. So that's actually how I start off my research and my article, I start talking about what does it actually mean to flourish? And this was actually a big part of our class, human flourishing. What does it mean to flourish? And so I kind of come down to, to flourish is to live into being made in the image of God. 
you know, God made humanity um, on the sixth day and said, we're really good. God made us in God's image. And so we are to live into that. And part of what that means is imitating Christ, who is the perfect human, who is the epitome of what therefore it is means to flourish. So if we're trying to imitate Christ, we have to imitate Christ in our context. You know, how I imitate Christ here in Rotorua will probably look very different than how you imitate Christ in Auckland. And how you do it in Auckland is different from how you used to do it in the States or used to do it in England or how I used to do it in the States. It's very contextual, I believe. And and it's contextual as individuals, but it's also contextual as a church. We are a gathered body of believers, and together we are trying to grow Christ's kingdom and imitate Christ together here in our area. And so that's really important link, I think, between flourishing and the church and discernment. We help each other out, discern what following Christ and imitating Christ looks like in our context. That's brilliant. That's really great, Elisha. Thank you for that. And I think that gives us some good groundings now to then talk a little bit more about those specifics. You've listed three aspects within psychology and social scientific theory that you drilled down into that you see being efficacious or helpful for how we do Baptist meetings. Can you unpack that now in a bit more detail? What were those theories? How would it apply in a Baptist context? And what would you want our listeners to be able to take away from that? Yeah, for sure. So the first one that I looked at is a theory called groupthink theory. And it was really popular in the 1970s and 80s. And it was all started by this guy named Jonas Irving. And he basically looked at disasters and, and why disasters went wrong. He looked at the bombings of Pearl Harbor and the Challenger explosion and things like that. And he said, why did things come to this at a decision making level? And he kind of came up with this theory that in areas and in groups, when there's a high level of cohesion, of unity, people don't want to speak up. People don't want to step on each other's toes. They don't want to make conflict. They want to maintain that peace. And so this is kind of what groupthink theory is. And it applies to a, a lot of different areas. It's got a lot of symptoms, a lot of influences. But I focus on what it means for our decision making. And it means a lot. And so... Basically, what it comes down to is in our churches, people may not want to speak up. You know, we we believe that we are to be in unity with one another as the body of Christ in our churches. And so if somebody speaks up, well, they might cause some conflict and we don't want that. And so individuals may not share what they think Christ's will is for us because somebody else has said something different. The majority have said something different. Now, groupthink is uh, overall a fairly negative theory. You know, you don't want groupthink in your church. There are some positives. So normally with groupthink, because every there's such a cohesion, you can make decisions really quickly and you can action them really quickly because everyone's in agreement, at least on the surface. But overall, for us being Baptists, it's not so much a great thing. Because we want people to be sharing. We believe that every person in our congregation is hearing from God and has something to share. And so if we have people not sharing, we're actually missing out, I think, on what Christ is trying to tell us. So groupthink overall is not a great thing for us in our churches. Mm. 
And just to chime in on that, Elisha, I really like how you've teased out this, you know, we can have this desire to be unified and that can be the share the unity of the bond of peace, right? Like in all the oneness statements in Ephesians 4. But I think sometimes we can mistake that unity for uniformity. And what I'm hearing from you and what I've read in your work is actually uniformity. It's a false form of unity. Mm. So that's not what we're looking for is for everybody to toe a party line or to completely agree. In fact, it's in our diversity of viewpoints and opinions and coming together and sitting in the oneness of Jesus. So our unity is still grounded in the person of Jesus, but that doesn't then just flatten our differences and our distinctiveness. And so how to bringing that together so that we are pushing against group think while also still being unified because of sharing that identity that's a kind of a uniquely Christian and Baptist way of trying to be, especially in these meeting spaces. Is that kind of a fair summary there? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, Krista. You know, it's okay to disagree on things and still love each other. You know, we can disagree on things and still come to the communion table and break bread together. You know, I think that's what it means to be Christian. That's what it means to be Baptist as we're discerning together. That's awesome. Okay, brilliant. All right, so that's group thing. That was one. Yep. What's the next one? So the next one is called social decision scheme theory. It's a tongue twister, so I'm just going to call it SDS theory. And basically, it's how we come to conclusions. How are we making our decisions? So examples of this may be uh, voting, voting for uh, the majority rules, um, or you could do random dictatorship. You can do unanimity. Um, you can do random selection. There's a bunch that you can do. So this is social decision. You know, it's SDS theory. <laughs> it's There's S- a reason for that. Good. Yeah, Good. <laughs> yeah. It's SDS theory, and so we need to look at how we're making our decisions and actually ask the question: Is the way we make decisions the best way? Because there are pros and cons to every method. The most common one is the majority rules theory. And as the name says, you just vote and whoever gets the most votes, but that's the winner. And in fact, it's been very common in Baptist circles. And since the 1800s, we have records that say we've been using this theory since the 1800s in Baptist circles. So it's quite an old one. And research shows that it's actually very accurate. When we're, when we're going and making uh, a choice from a selection of preferences, then normally research shows that the decision that's made in the end is beneficial overall. However, there are flaws that come with it as well. Study also shows that it's generally the first option presented that receives support is the one that is voted for in the end. So even if there is a better option that comes third or fourth, it generally is not chosen in the end. It's the first option that's provided. So that's where the flaw comes in. And I think we need to really seriously consider this in our churches, whether this is the best method for us. Personally, I think it is. I think it is the best method, but we need to consider how we're articulating our thoughts around it. Because social SDS focuses on preferences. It's about options and choices. We could choose any of these, but we're going to choose one. And I think we need to move away from that. And we need to move towards, we're trying to discern what Christ wants. 
You know, we're not a democracy, we're a Christocracy. So when we come into our decision-making schemes and in times of voting, I think it's fine to go with the majority rules method, but we need to actually just be narrowing down our options to actually what does Christ want? You know, I'm not choosing an option. I'm figuring out what does Christ want? So yeah, that's a little bit about social decision schemes. So just to to clarify some of that, um, let's say you've got um, an eldership who are trying to help the community figure out which way to go on, on something. I'm trying to think of a kind of a simple, um, what, what to, to use. They've got a hundred dollars that was given to the community that has not been allocated anywhere and deciding what to do with a hundred dollars. Um, the elders might start thinking of what the different options would be to how to, how to use that. And then giving those options to the community, or would it be going to the community first and saying, what do you think those options should be? And then taking the, the, ideas that are given by the community and kind of listing out here's what people have been saying. And the majority are saying these top three things like how, and and I'm sure you'll get into some of the pragmatics of this um, later on, but if for, for listeners trying to get their head around SDS, what, how how do you see SDS applying with what to do with that hundred dollars? Yeah, that's a really good question, Krista. Um, Luke Johnson is is an author. He writes a book called Scripture and Discernment. And he talks about two different kinds of decisions. He talks about task decisions and identity decisions. So task decisions are, like you said, you know, we've got this money. What are we going to do with it? They're really actionable. And identity decisions are are more general. They involve impacts to our identity, you know, Um, maybe more like what's our mission statement? our vision statement rather than, you know, what are we going to do with this hundred dollars? I think so SDS theory can work for both. The majority rules method is more tailored towards choosing an option from a list. But I do think we can use uh, the majority rules method for both identity and task decisions. It only matters on how we apply it. I think we need to spend time uh, discerning together before we vote. So voting needs to be the very end. So uh, many times I've seen that a leadership and eldership have come up with an idea. They'll present it to the church maybe a week before the meeting itself. You come, you vote, you go home. Whereas what I would like to see is us actually taking the time and using it as a process with making the vote at the very end. The discernment needs to come first, and the vote is just there to confirm our discernment. Okay? The vote isn't the discernment itself. It's just there to confirm the discernment. Do we agree this is what the will of Christ is? So that's helpful because I was thinking as you were sharing this, like how would a listener distinguish between a majority rule option from just the de- democratic form of voting, right? And you're pushing on that to say, no, we're a Christocracy, not a democracy. But majority rule sounds very democratic. But it's actually how you're framing it. How are we getting to that majority rule? The discernment process has led up all the way to where that vote 
which is then saying, okay, the majority of us have actually agreed upon what we've arrived at through discerning together. And I know, again, we'll talk through what could that look like in, in the next theory, but is that how you would, with, for someone that says, okay, what you're saying, majority rule is a good form of SDS. And the reason that's not undermining Christocracy is at what point you're getting the majority rule? Yes, I agree. Yep. So like I said, with, with majority rules, it's often the first option that's presented that that's chosen because you can move immediately into a vote, you know, but if instead we look at the options, we take the time to discern, you know, what is the will of Christ out of these, then we just use the vote to confirm that that is the will of Christ. Then I think we remove those pitfalls of Mm -hmm. just choosing the first one we hear about. Yeah, and even having the option of, hey, there might be an option that's not on this list. These are the things we've discerned leading up to this point, but if there are other thoughts, we still want to hear those out. Is there still giving space for that, Elisha? That Yep, absolutely. We want to we want to take the time to listen. I think that's the key thing. Um in doing my research and it's not actually a part of my article, But in doing my research, I looked at the Society of Friends and what they do, the Quakers, and what they do in their meetings. And they've got a great saying, which I love, when in doubt, wait. You know, when in doubt, wait. If one of these options isn't what God wants, God will reveal it. Let's just wait. You know, I love that, that sometimes not doing something is also an option. And there are options that aren't on our list that we haven't heard before that will come in time. That's really helpful, Elisha. And it's interesting, even as you're talking about SDS, thinking about how that also relates to groupthink. Because if you've got the first option that's presented, then it's harder to even, if again, you're supposed to be unified and you mistake unified with uniform, the first option that's up there, and then you want to vote, and you're like, oh, I don't want to rock the boat. I don't want to, you know, like slow down the process. So I think even what you're talking about, it's tapping into even a presupposition about our values. Mm -hmm. So are we trying to just push decisions through to get, you know, the task done or the identity formed? And and to be honest, there'll probably be some tasks that have a bit more time urgency, But if we can, I love that Quaker quote, right? Like we actually should wait. But I think that pushes against some of our maybe more efficiency-minded ways of doing things that we want to get through that agenda. We've got things to do. We've, you know, we've got got ministry (laughs) to get off the ground. So so for the listener who's thinking, I get that, Elisha, um, but this sounds... It just sounds really hard to do because at the end of the day, we do have tasks to get done and identity statements to form or whatnot. What would be your encouragement to that listener? Yeah, I and, and to be honest, I, as you were saying that, I was thinking, actually, you know, we don't need to discern everything. Hmm. You know, I know that the, the classic uh, joke about Baptist discernment meetings is arguments over the color of the carpet. Mm-hmm. I do not personally believe that the color of the church's new carpet needs to be discerned in a group meeting. I don't I don't think Christ so much minds which color we choose. I think he mm-hmm. cares more that we've got a floor to stand on. You know. So I think there are some decisions that do not need to come before a huge group discernment process. Mm-hmm. Um, there are tasks, so we we talk about identity and dis- and 
task decisions, there are some task decisions that do not need to come before a discernment meeting. And in fact, some of our identity decisions will inform our task decisions so that we don't need to bring them forward. You know, sorry. No, no, no. I just think it's so good, Elisha, because you're just you're giving some language for that objection, right? That just, uh, well, we're just going to go and and trivialize the discernment process over the, the, the dumbest things. But in fact, if you've had that corporate discernment on identity, as you just said, some of the task things flow downstream from what we will say yes to and what we won't say yes to as a community in light of who we are. So, so would you maybe, I don't want to, you know, peg you to the wall on this, but like, would you say that when it comes to identity understanding that should be done corporately over and against maybe task things, which not all of those tasks need to be discerned corporately. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. I, I think there's a priority on identity decisions that need discernment. And and there are task decisions that need to be discerned as well. Maybe not $100, but if someone gave $100,000, <laughs> you know, I think we'd, we'd want to discern as a community mm. where that money's going. And our identity decisions that we make will flow into that and come into the discernment process. You know, if we've discerned that as a community, Christ wants us to be working with the homeless. Well, then we can discern where that money's going, but our priority of, of working with the homeless is going to feed into that, mm-hmm. you know? So there are, there, yeah, I agree. There are times when we don't need uh, to, to discern everything and there are task decisions that will need discernment, but there are plenty of task decisions that won't need discernment. That's so helpful, Elisha. I mean, you're really, I mean, you're genuinely teaching me things that are helping me think about my own work. Um, so this is just, yeah, thank you for letting me riff <laughs> way off script on some of these questions. Cause I just, I think this is where the rubber meets the road mm-hmm. and why so many people don't press into moving Baptist ecclesiology from theory into practice. Cause, cause it just feels too hard and we don't feel like we have enough scaffolding built in to then have those kinds of corporate decision-making processes. So let's move into that third theory then. uh, And then some of the things you thought through and put in your article about how this could actually look pragmatically. And we'll go from there. Yeah. So the third area I researched actually isn't one theory, but just research around an area. And that's how group size, the size of our group impacts our decision-making. And to boil it down to a nutshell, the, the thing is, don't have a large group. That's what the science is saying. Don't have a large group in your decision making. Um, part of it is if you have a larger group, there's going to be more pressure to conform to what the majority is. So you're not going to get people to speak up. Same with uh, groupthink. You know, there are some differences though. Sometimes with um, group size, they talk about uh, informational conformity. So if one person shared where even when one person shared something similar to what you think, you won't get up and share because that person's already shared. You know, I think that kind of goes against what we believe in the Baptist world because everyone's important. We want to hear from everyone. You know, so if we have a larger group and people aren't sharing, I think we're missing out. So we talk about um, we talk about different kinds of influences. We talk about information influence. That's one of them, you know, who's sharing what, you know, and if we have larger groups, there's more influence to not share as much because you're feeling that pressure. And then there's the conformity factor. And is that, that pressure of, 
having a large group and being afraid of not conforming to that large group of duplicating information. What do you, can you just say a little bit more? What do you mean by that? Yeah, sure. So there's both. There's both. There's the I I'm not going to share because it's already been shared, or what I share will not be important. And then there's also um, with a larger group. The larger group you have, the more pressure there is to conform. Um, some studies say that the more people you have, the more pressure there is to conform. And some studies say that after a certain number, maybe even three people have shared an opinion, that there's maximum pressure to conform to that opinion. Interesting. It, is is that an efficiency thing of like, ah, we just don't need to say any el- anything else on it? Why, why, why is that a factor? Yeah, so I think it's both. I think there's that efficiency. I don't need to say anything on it. And then I also think there, it comes back to groupthink. They're all interconnected. That groupthink that once three people have shared, okay, everybody's got this idea. So I'm not going to share something else if it's different because I don't want that conflict. So is that three people sharing the same idea or yes. ideas that have consonants? Okay. Uh, so it's almost like it gets stronger and stronger and stronger once you hit the three of agreement. Okay. I'm not going to say anything because yeah. I don't want to be the dissenter. I don't want to get you know upset the unity and the group think factor playing into that. Yep. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So, so yep. So large groups are not what we want. They say the ideal group size is between four and 11 people. They say if you have anything less than that, anything less than four people, you're not getting enough diversity in your conversation. And they say if you have anything more than 11 people, you're just going to reach too much conformity pressure, too much information pressure. Not everyone's going to speak up. So then... What do we do since most of our churches are larger than 11 people? How then do we discern the mind of Christ and try to avoid some of these pitfalls you've identified? Yep. So I have produced in my research what I think is a, a model of, of how we can do discernment practice. And it's based around our small groups. I think we need to think smart. We have small groups. Why not use them? They're generally pretty small, um, these small groups. They're generally within that 4 to 11 size, I find from experience. So why don't we discern in those groups? I would suggest that if you have an eldership or leadership that kind of start these discernment processes, to get them to come up with information about what we want discernment on. They can even come up with some choices and then bring those and provide them to the small group leaders. You want that small group leader to be a safe person for everyone. And then within the small group, share that information about the decision you're going to make and then pray about it. You know, we're people of prayer. You know, we talk to God. So pray about it. Read the scriptures on the topic. And then leave. You know, you're fine to share there, but leave. Go away and have each person sent to an independent discernment facilitator what they've discerned so far. Uh, Now, I realize it's probably a bit of work for the discernment facilitator themselves to receive all these emails or all these phone calls. Um, But by doing it independently, you are avoiding the pitfalls of groupthink because you're not experiencing the pressure to conform, you know, and you're creating a space where everyone can be heard, you know, where they feel comfortable sharing and where they feel like they've been heard. Now, the facilitator would then collect up all those ideas, produce a document that says this is the different 
things that people have hurt. And you can summarize, you know, you don't need to share every single person's story. Summarize and send that back out to everyone. Okay. Now we've got a smaller group of information that we're dealing with, you know, and then you can read that and be like, oh, I heard the same thing from God, you know, and we can test that those discernments, you know, we are to test things. We read scripture, we pray about what we've, what we've read, what's been shared with us. And then we test those and we take that back into a meeting. I think it's fine then for it to be shared at the meeting. If, if you've tested something and said, no, I don't think that's the will of Christ, or I really do think that's the will of Christ, then I think it can be shared. But it's gone through enough time of, of personal and small group discernment that you're fairly set on what you've heard from God. There's less pressure than I believe. And then take that into a voting. Then take that into a vote. Because by then you've done the group work. You know, you've discerned as a gathered community in your small groups. You've done the individual work. Is this actually what I believe we're hearing from God? You've tested it against scripture and prayer. And now you're taking it back into a group and making a decision as a large group. That is so helpful, Elisha, to have just a a pathway, (laughs) like a practical step-by-step pathway of what this could look like that takes into account these different pressures, these sociological pressures to try to find a different way that is maybe less efficient, but more dignifying to the whole community. Okay, so I'm trying to think with lots of different listeners' hats on, right? So after that data has been collated by the facilitator and then sent back out to everyone, do you think there would be benefit, especially if we're pushing on some of the efficiency paradigm, to then go back into their small groups and to talk it out again before the AGM or if there was a big gathered meeting? Yeah, absolutely. You could. I'm just wary, however, of the practicality. You know, um, I think there's this sense of we want to take our time to do the process right, but we also don't want to put unnecessary steps in. We don't want to make more work for people, to be honest. So while absolutely you can do that, um, I don't think I would just from a practical point of view, because it's just another meeting, just another meeting. And I think people are kind of tired of meetings. And even though this is a slightly nicer meeting, um, it, it, it maybe draws out the process too much. Well, and I think what I'm, what I'm suggesting is more of going back to the small group that you're already meeting in weekly. So if you've started that process in the small group, talked about it, prayed, maybe discussed a little bit, but you haven't gone off and done your individual prayer, then you could still send that your response off to the facilitator or come back in the next week at your small group, continue that discussion. It's just, I'm thinking pedagogically, right? Like what I do in class, it's called the think, pair, share technique. So you think on your own about your answer to whatever the question is on the course content. Then I pair you up to discuss that with someone in a smaller, just one-on-one context So you hear your own voice. It's not the whole class. And then you have a chance to share it back out. But the value Mm. of having a place to come and vocalize your thoughts, not uh, alone. I think there's that value of just trying to actually bring what people have gone and discerned individually. One other kind of outlet to process that in a smaller group, because then it goes from individual processing 
to the whole group of the church. Yeah. And that feels like a big jump, especially for folks that might be more nervous, might be more introverted and, and don't want to push on groupthink stuff. When you share that in your small group, oh, wow, you discern the same thing yeah. in that group of four to 11. I could see that adding another layer of being able to have voice heard and to, to suss that out in that smaller group that don't have some of those other pressures that you've identified. And then you go into the AGM being like, actually, our whole small group thinks X, Y, or Z. You know, it's not just me that thinks that. So just as you're processing that, I, I'm thinking through that, that might be an, an, a helpful additional step. But like you said, this is contextual. And a lot of it depends on the, the maturity of that community already. It might be a community that already is really comfortable with each mm -hmm. other in a large group space. And moving from giving the facilitator information and that being distilled and then just sent out to the whole body just before the, the, the meeting, the whole church meeting, that actually might be super possible for, I would say that would be for more mature communities who have built up good communication skills and practices versus maybe we actually need to scaffold that a little bit more, especially if that discerning the mind of Christ idea is brand new to a community. So just trying to think again as a model, right, that there might be adaptations to that model, but people thinking in terms of actually these are the ways social psychologists have found that people think and so how can we try to create mechanisms for discerning the mind of Christ that don't fall um, prey to some of those issues? Yeah, no, absolutely. As you're talking there and, you know, articulating that, I think that's actually, there's some definite value for that. And I think, like you said, it, it's context-based. You know, for some churches, yeah, it might, or some people actually, individuals as well, it actually might be really helpful to have that second small group meeting. You know, if people are hesitant to actually hear this from God, you know, you can go back and be like, actually, you know what? I'm hearing that correct. It builds up some confidence because what we, what we really want is to people to build up confidence in what they're hearing from God. You know, we want them to hear from God and build up confidence. Yes, this is so that when they go into the end process, they believe yes, this is the will of God, and they're not feeling that pressure to conform. This is brilliant, Elisha. So let me ask one more question, okay. and then we can kind of land this plane in kind of how you've been personally impacted by this research. Um, so let's say you go through that whole process, right? So you've done the first small group. Here's the decision we want to discern, discussed it a little bit but then really gone away. You've prayed, you've read scripture independently, you've emailed this external facilitator, you've then come back to your small group, and then you've met up in the large group. So you're at that large group, and it's a split vote. <laughs> you know, you've done all this hard work, right, to discern the mind of Christ. To best embody that Christocracy, what then do we do if that happens? <laughs> um. That is a great question. And to that, I would actually also turn to the Quakers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, when in doubt, wait. Mm. I also have a list. It's from a great journal article called, it's actually a dissertation, from decision-making to discernment using Ignatian and Friends models of discernment in Baptist context. It is phenomenal. Just a really brilliant read about how, um, gaining resources from other communities of faith yeah. and how we can discern. Who's that by? This is by Leon Cameron. Cool. 
Okay. Leon Cameron. Um, but he's got a list of questions. And these are questions that should be asked of those in the minority who are not for a decision. And I think these oh. are just absolutely lovely and really practical and pastoral. And they go like this. Do you feel you have been listened to and that your concern has been heard by a larger group? Are you satisfied with your articulation of your concerns, including why they're compelling? Or is there anything you'd like to add or clarify? Is your desire first and foremost the discerning and following of Christ's will and leading on this and other matters? Do you believe that others also desire to follow Christ supremely? And is it conceivable that the larger group may have grasped the Lord's leading on this matter despite your continued concerns? Are you willing to release your concerns to the meeting and to lovingly support the action taken trusting that Christ is leading and will continue to lead individuals and groups committed to living under his lordship. Wow. I think when we come to a split decision, we need to wait. I think mm -hmm. we need to stop. We need to ask, is what I'm hearing God's will or is there a part of me in this? Mm -hmm. Because ultimately we want to be following Christ. That is excellent, Elisha. And I just think, really challenging for how we think about discerning the mind of Christ together. And what I love about what you've presented today and what you've written on in your research is it's just dignifying. Mm. Like it's a pathway to dignify every saint in these gathered spaces. And so I think that helps us not have those eyes glaze over, <laughs> right? In those Baptist meetings, because what we do is we have this anticipation is not just God's about to show up now, but God's been showing up mm. as we've been preparing our hearts, as we've been discerning the mind of Christ before this meeting time. I'm hearing that from you as well, right? That we've put a lot of eggs in that basket of that one hour meeting or that meeting that we hope will be an hour and we have an agenda that's crazy to try to get through in it. <laughs> and so there's this, this belief really in God's empowerment of the saints the Spirit's work in unifying our hearts and minds, but also, also pathways forward when we are in disagreement, when we haven't mm -hmm. discerned rightly, right? Because you can't, you can't be coming to two contradictory answers, right? God will not be divided against God's self. So something's going on. So to have those questions to land that, I just think that's quite beautiful because it's dignifying the agency of those who disagree mm -hmm. while also saying, maybe you've missed it. Now, equally, so could the majority, <laughs> and it leaves space for that. Um, so I just think, Elijah, this is just beautiful what you've presented, and, and I'm so thankful for what you've done and what you shared. So could we maybe close this conversation with you um, talking about how have you been personally impacted by this research pathway? Yeah, I think it's actually changed the way I think about discernment quite a bit. I think it's changed the way I think about the gathered body of Christ and, and everything that we do quite a bit. Um, it's kind of shifted my mind, you know, to think about everything that we do and especially our discernments together as a communication, a conversation between the divine and the human. You know, we come expecting God to talk and we are here to listen and 
I think we listen as humans listen, you know, and sometimes we don't, being humans, listen great. Um, and so I think this has helped me maybe frame my mind about how I'm listening as a human and how we can listen together. Mm. Mm, that's beautiful. Elisha, thank you so much for sharing that. And also just, it's cool for me as one who was your lecturer, but very much learned from you. I love that in that post-grad space, it does become more of a, a collaborative learning environment. And it's that at the undergraduate level too, but I know there's more of a gap for students in what they're learning. And, and so hopefully for folks that are listening to this who have a, a little kind of tickle at the back of their throat or in the, the back of their mind to come and do some study with us, um, hearing the things that you've sunk your teeth into. I hope that that maybe lights a bit of a fire for folks to see this isn't just, you know, abstraction that doesn't land in real life, but actually our theology matters. And so I'm just thankful for you for doing the hard work of connecting our theology to how we live into that. Um, so yeah, so thank you so much again. Uh, it's been a joy to have you on the podcast. Oh, it's been my pleasure, Krista. Thank you for having me on.